Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast all about the 2020 Democratic primary. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. This week on Primarily 2020, I will be speaking to communications consultant Rob Blackie about political branding and the role of innovation in political campaigns and advertising. And I'll also do a quick news roundup, including a couple of non-announcements and the conversation about anti-Semitism that's been taking place in the U.S. House of Representatives. Unusually this week on Primarily 2020, we have two important non-announcements to tell you about. These are people who were expected to possibly make a run for the presidential primary, um, who have made clear that they will not in this cycle. The first of those is Mike Bloomberg, the former New York mayor and billionaire businessman. Bloomberg said that um, he is realistic about the fact that he has very little chance of winning the Democratic primary in this cycle. Um, He says he's concerned about the leftward slant of the Democratic Party. However, his first priority remains getting Donald Trump out of office. Um, And to his credit, he isn't just sitting by the sidelines. He has decided to invest his time, money and energy in an initiative called Beyond Carbon, which is trying to pull together a coalition of people to work in combating climate change. Another important non-announcement this week, Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio, who we've talked about on this podcast before, has made clear that he he also will not be running. Um, He cited a number of reasons, but I think fundamentally just felt it wasn't his time. Brown is an interesting uh, candidate or would have been an interesting candidate because, first of all, being from Ohio um, and second of all, being a sort of... um, almost you'd say a a populist working class icon. Um, He's somebody who has spoken quite a lot about the the dignity of work, um, but perhaps um, has also taken a a more of an anti-free trade or a a more skeptical position on free trade um, than some others on in the Democratic Party. Um, So Sherrod Brown will not be running, um, which is interesting because I think there was a a space potentially in our suite of nominees or a suite of candidates for someone like Sherrod Brown, and it will be interesting to see if if someone else steps up to fill that role. Um, In other news, the Democrats this week spent quite a lot of time um, talking about uh, controversies around freshman representative Ilhan Omar. Omar is the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in the House, um, also the first American uh, female to wear a headscarf. Um, on the House floor. Um, She was accused of making anti-Semitic comments, or at least comments that certainly had an anti-Semitic flavor to them. Um, Omar has apologized to the Jewish community, but has stood by her criticism of the Israeli government and of of AIPAC, the American-Israeli Political Action Committee. Um, There's been a lot of debate about this, this that this week, Nancy Pelosi um, spent some time drafting a resolution um, which condemns hate speech against Israel, against Jewish Americans as well as uh, many other groups, um, which eventually wound up being voted for by every Democrat on the House floor. It didn't mention Omar by name, but obviously was created in the context of that conversation. Um, interestingly, in the end, more than 20 Republican members of the House did not vote for that resolution condemning hate speech, citing a number of effectively um, minority communities that they didn't particularly want to be protected hate speech. And then uh, Representative Mo Brooks of Alabama uh, was outraged that the resolution, quote, refused to similarly condemn discrimination against Caucasian Americans and Christians. So that's a thing that happened. I'm sure we will be hearing a lot more um, debates of this type um, and certainly the lens uh, through which we view Omar as the first Palestinian-American representative is going to continue to be um, one that we will watch closely. It's worth saying, I think... There was, um, there is a history of anti-Semitism, um, which is closely associated with allegations of Jewish people as being disproportionately powerful and competent. Um, and I think it's interesting, and I've talked about this a bit on Twitter, to note the ways in which that 
anti-Semitic trope aligns with a non-anti-Semitic criticism that is made by Democrats and by people on the left um, of all political power and influence. And one of the things that I would argue is that we need to be really careful that we don't talk just in the language of bad people doing bad things, but talk about the systems and structures that allow these things to happen. Um, Our political structures are deeply influenced and disproportionately influenced by um, wealthy people who are able to invest their monies in ways that are contrary to the interest of our democracy um, and undemocratic with a small d, that those people do not necessarily have to be bad people. They're not necessarily good people either, um, but they are responsive to systems and structures. And I think we are on the left in the habit of speaking in terms of um, bad billionaires um, and kind of money grubbing, um, money grubbing nasty people. When you apply that criticism to Jewish people, it resonates very closely with an anti-Semitic meme. Um, but I would also argue that it's it's not a very helpful construction anyway. So let's let let's let this concern about trying to avoid historical tropes associated with anti-Semitism also encourage us to be smarter about our criticisms of the role of money and power in politics, um, because it isn't about good or bad people. It is about making a system that works better for all, better for average American voters, um, less power for people who may be good or bad people, but just disproportionately are too powerful. So I want to welcome Rob Blackie to the podcast today. Um, I have known Rob for many, many years and and worked with him in two different companies at two different times. Um, Rob is a strategic marketing consultant who has worked with everybody from uh, nonprofits like the anti-Brexit campaign Best for Britain um, and also the Wellcome Trust and also lots of other big brands, including people you may know like The Body Shop, one of my all-time favorite health and beauty shops. Um, Today, Rob's here to talk to me a little bit about how we create political brands, especially how candidates and parties can be innovative in how they craft their messages. So welcome, Rob. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, It's a pleasure as always. Um, Rob, you recently wrote a a really lovely piece um, highlighting some of the uh, more innovative or interesting or successful political campaigns um, and adverts from from the 2018 midterm election. So I thought it would be fun today. Just talk about some of those in a little bit more detail and and uh, and run through what you think is is good and bad about what they've been doing. So are, are there any in particular that you want to you want to shout out to us? Yeah, I was going to pick out two or three. Um, all of them. Uh, took a creative approach to what could be a fairly boring uh, message. You know, often people think that politics is just about arguing about policies. Uh, and all of these, I think, have found an interesting way in to engage people who might not be interested in, in politics in any deep way. Uh, so the first one of which uh, was one called uh, about a politician called Paul Gozer. Um, and the entire advert is him being um, insulted, really, by his brothers and sister. Um, saying that really he'll be a terrible candidate if elected or that they, and you should vote for somebody else. Um, and the extraordinary thing about him is it, obviously a horrible thing to do to your siblings, um, but also I think highly effective because it's so unexpected because normally you see family are, you know, are supporting footage in, in, for most politicians saying nice things about their, their brother or sister or their husband or wife. And in this case, uh, absolutely brutal and fascinating uh, because of it. Um, And then at the much more charming end of the scale were a couple of things where they told stories about people, but in an unusual way. Mm -hmm. Uh, So one of which was really all faced around a candidate who had been a soldier in Afghanistan. But rather than talking about all the serious side of that, he talked about how what music he would listen to. Because, of course, all soldiers wear headsets these days to communicate during battles and stuff. But, of course, when they're not being shot at and they're driving around, they all just listen to music. Uh, and it's a candidate pointing out that everyone assumes, because of films, uh, that soldiers are, are listening to heavy metal, um, because that's all the films show. Uh, in <laughs> fact, he's uh, listening to like really cheesy music and singing well, along really badly. 
Well, actually, he had Pitch Perfect on, which is a fantastic pop movie starring Anna Kendrick. So I was I was there with him on his Pitch Perfect battles. It was great. <laughs> Brilliant. I, I took it to, in, in, into a new place. And equally, I thought there were a couple of campaigns where they had really geeky candidates who were really into the detail of stuff for political offices where none of us could really say what a good candidate would be. Um, and one of them uh, took a state auditor uh, and it had her just going around being really excited by her job that you would expect to be really boring. And just that incongruence uh, made it very funny and engaging in a way that you wouldn't normally yeah. expect for a job like that. So she could deliver a few messages about technical stuff, but it didn't really matter what the technical stuff was. It was really, she was somebody who enjoyed doing the technical stuff and that's yeah. why you should re-elect her. Which is a really smart message, isn't it? Because I think no, the, to the degree that anybody gives any thought to what they're looking for in a state auditor, um, I think, you know, she's playing into this, I'm a total geek, I love technocratic details of governance. Um, and I think to the extent that anybody gives any thought to it, that's probably what you're looking for. But because she did it in such a comical way, she also added humanity into it as well, which was which was refreshing um, rather than somebody sort of facing into camera and going, the things that I think are really important as state auditor include transparency and meeting effectiveness and so on and so forth. So yeah, it was it was nice. The the other two, the first two that you talked about, it strikes me have something in common, which is that they both they almost have like the mechanism of a joke in that there's a setup and a punchline, right? So yeah. they, they they have that that element of surprise of, oh, this isn't what I was expecting, because the the one with the siblings, it's they kind of reveal they start out with a bunch of people attacking this guy, and then at the end they all say or or in the middle of the ad they all say you know and reveal that they're his siblings, and it's just a gut punch. So, it, but it sets up really effectively with it with a joke structure. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what, that's what makes them interesting, because it's so easy to be boring with these things. Uh, because, you know, almost every candidate uh, will say they're patriotic and they you know, believe in motherhood and apple pie. And, you know, they love their family, all of which by itself is fine. Um, but when you are trying to choose between people, uh, it makes everyone look the same. Yeah. But what's, so what's that, in another ad I, I spotted, which I thought was very... Uh, it wasn't it could have been slightly better but it was where somebody got two politicians he was running against and got cardboard cutouts of them and showed that they were basically identical in every way and nobody could tell them apart and I thought that was a nice point of making okay my opponents are all the same which again is a classic way to attack multiple people at once yeah but, uh, did it in an interesting way see I think I think that ad was interesting because I watched that one and it I found it I, I could see that the idea was clever, but it had a really perverse effect on me, which is that I looked at it and I went, you literally don't look that different than the candidates you're criticizing. Um, <laughs> that was definitely the downside of that it, ad. It was hilarious. I was like, are you unaware of the fact that you are the third white man in this yeah. commercial? And the thing is, it wasn't just that he was just a preferred white man. Was, he actually was dressed in a relatively similar way. It was a difference yeah. between an open neck shirt and a suit. And I thought, well, okay, that, there is some difference there, but it's yeah. it's it's not huge. Uh, if you're in a t-shirt or I don't know, black tie or just anything that differentiates <laughs> you, it would have uh, it would have made you a bit more interesting. Well, I think I think, and the messaging of that ad was interesting because the 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 point he was trying to make, or at least what I took away from the ad, was he was saying he was making a case for him being a businessman as opposed to a politician. And so the critique was against quote unquote career politicians and the idea that I'm gonna come in from outside the political establishment. But I don't think people make as much, I mean, to me, and I mean, this is obviously a leftist perspective that I have, but it all just feels very establishment to me and it all feels very kind of traditional establishment. Um, and I don't think, and I, but, but I mean, that was an effective message perhaps in 2016, certainly in the US. So maybe that's what they're leaning into, but it will be curious, it will be interesting to me to see whether that message remains as effective now during the Trump era as it did for Trump to create the Trump era. Yeah, and I think that plays to, uh, I think, uh, really what the best politicians do, uh, which is to say something positive about themselves, but also at some level is negative about the opposition. Um, so, you know, Barack Obama presented himself as a unifier, uh, but also 
by implication his opponents weren't. Sure. And I think that, that was very that can be very effective. And the danger, if you just simply talk about the negatives of your opponents, uh, is that you don't look terribly inspiring yourself. You, you need something about yourself that's different and interesting uh, uh, to inspire people. And you know, whatever you say about Donald Trump, he's he different. different. Um, and people had a point of view on him. And of course, you know, with how many years of The Apprentice it was, people saw him as being a businessman. And however much that might be slightly fraudulent, uh, people you know, had an image of him. And that was different from his opponents. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay, so so there was a lot of, as you say, some, some innovation um, in the 2018 uh, advertising. Having said that, for all of the ads that you pointed out, there were an awful lot of ads that looked exactly like every other political ad. Yes, um, I, spent, I spent an afternoon one day looking at about 200 that had been shortlisted for awards. And what was notable, actually, was how uninnovative even yeah. award winners were a lot of the time. And they were just simply saying, your opponent believes in a bad thing or has done a bad thing. And, you know, Sometimes they might have a little bit of humour sprinkled into them, but a lot of the time they were they were pretty much what you'd expected for for the last twenty years, actually. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a template for political ad, isn't it? It's some stirring music. Well, it's there's two versions, I would argue. So the template political ad exists in two versions: the contrast negative ad and the inspirational personal story positive ad. So the personal story positive ad. Typically, it's lovely, swelling music, inspirational stories, some some shots of the candidate in front of a big crowd, everybody cheers, um, boilerplate template language about doing good things and not doing bad things. You can almost you can write it right, and you can write yeah. it for any party. It it comes out the same. And then similarly, a contrast ad. That's where you tend to see a lot more innovation sometimes. I think because people use. But but still, it's scary music. They, you know, politician X did a bad thing, you know. And often it's on the basis of cast a vote on a procedural motion for a bill, one of the clauses of which included this. And it's like, voted against this good thing. Um, and it's just, it's too easy to make them. It's it's frighteningly easy to to make these ads without thinking much about it. And, and I think that's I think that's a mistake people make is that if you're on 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 a surface level, it's always easier to attack somebody. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's actually sustainably you have to have a positive uh, image of some sort, positive personal brand uh, that uh, can sustain attacks. And building that app is hard because if you look like everybody else, nobody will remember who you are. And yeah. I think that's the fundamental thing most politicians have is hardly anyone knows who more than about five politicians are in any country at any one time. Yeah. Uh, so the figure I think you picked up on the other day, which is I think there are less than 30 politicians in Britain who are known by more than 10% of the public. Yeah. Um, I think 10% is quite a low number, actually, if you think about it. But <laughs> you know, um, uh, the vast majority of politicians just aren't really known by anybody. Well, I think I think that's... The, the British example is interesting, and it, it's probably true in the US as well. But I think there's another dynamic of a difference between British and American politics that I think is interesting. And, and it happens in two ways. One is we've been talking about advertising, most of which most of what we've been talking about has been TV advertising. You had a few examples in there that were that were either mailers or other types of advertising, but fundamentally. And TV advertising for politics, my American viewers may not even realize it doesn't exist here. Um, apart from you've got one, uh, each party gets a political broadcast, um, usually at some odd time of day. But you can't do what we do in America, which is which is flood the zone with with millions of pounds worth of TV ads. It's just it's just not a thing. That's true. But of course, the thing that is changing in Britain is that because online advertising isn't regulated, yep. um, uh, parties are now spending a lot of money on YouTube and Facebook uh, to do the equivalent. Um, and yeah, obviously, there's going to be increasingly blurred areas where, well, is Channel 4 online a TV channel or not? Yep. Yep. I suspect regulators at the moment will say it's a TV channel, but you probably take uh, two steps away from that to, let's say, Amazon Prime. Uh, and you try to advertise on there, uh, then I think that would be uh, probably uh, considered not to be TV advertising, even though it is in any meaningful way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that the the 
government stakeholders have a really challenging path ahead of them over the next, I would say, probably five years or so, because they will have to make a lot of critical decisions that they are not in a good position to make just due to sheer failure to understand the platforms um, about how to regulate them um, in the political system. So watch this space. I think it's going to be a, a, a challenging and interesting few years as far as that goes. Um but so TV ads in the U.S. Are, are just generally a much bigger thing, despite the changes that you're talking about. But partisanship, the partisan lens to me is really interesting because one of the other things that I noticed just in reviewing the ads that you put forward, which surprised me a little, was the party lens was was less visible in it than I expected it to be. So most of these candidates, if you didn't know, and there were only a few of them because a lot of them were local or smaller offices that I, I hadn't been following. If you didn't know which party each candidate was on, you wouldn't necessarily pick it up from the ads. That's, it was surprising yeah. to me. Yeah, that, that I found fascinating. Um, I, I, it's an interesting question. And I, I, I guess the, maybe the explanation is that for many of these offices, um, you're, try, yeah, you're trying to, uh, you're restricting yourself to a too small universe if you accidentally appeal to your own side. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it is exactly because they are swing offices, um, you know, in swing, swing, swing states where the most interesting political advertising tends to happen. And yes, as you say, people are people who are not already aligned one way or the other with the political party. You're trying to if you're trying to win them over through TV ads. Um, but it was surprising to me, especially because we know that par that partisanship is very salient in American politics right now. That actually partisanship is. Um, higher than it's ever been and people are very hard to shake out of their partisan view partisan loyalty um even people who define themselves as independents there's a very very small proportion of of genuine independents um and most people will vote party line across the board um in most cases but perhaps not in the cases of where you need to be most innovative so maybe that's what we're seeing yeah that's a interesting point but it's it's a difference to me. Um, it struck me in terms of the advertising that I've seen in in the UK, because it is much more party centered here, and it's much more about building party coalitions. Like even even things like materials are all party branded, using the party colors. It's it just feels like and and parties party membership is different here than it, it in, than it is in the states. Um, I talked on a recent podcast with Emma Burnell about the fact that American the Democratic Party does not allow you cannot charge a membership fee for any American political yeah. party. Whereas here, membership fees are an elemental part of being a party member and party membership is a very, very more, very different lens to it. And I, I kind of feel like that influences a lot of how we, how we respectively view politics in different ways. Uh, it was also a very practical thing, which is there's so much less money in British politics, that mm. um, most candidates don't have much resource to adapt anything like a leaflet to to personalize it very much so that they can you know what the parties will do is the parties will create a template where about 80 percent of it is preset saying you know we're in favor of brexit or against brexit <clears throat> and the part and the local candidates team will drop in a photograph of of the candidate and sort of mail merge their name in uh, but essentially a lot of those uh, 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 a lot of that work is done centrally it's sort of mass produced and, and even you'll see um, in a lot of campaigns, uh, particularly the Labour Party, actually, I notice, um, create central leaflets which are not adapted at all, are entirely national, uh, and just give them or, or give them cheaply to, to the local parties. Uh, so that lack of resources actually means you get much less focus on the candidates. Yeah. Um, equally, uh, British spending law, uh, because it's very highly constrained at local level, <coughs> means that if a national party does um, materials, uh, and campaigns uh, in a local area. It helps the local candidate, um, but it doesn't uh, count against the local spending limits. Um, and I think everyone uh, in, uh, in all political parties now recognizes that that's completely broken in Britain. Because you have know, a spending limit for a uh, general election campaign in the constituency might only be about 15,000 pounds, but uh, the parties, uh, yeah, a major party might in that constituency spend 10 times that on, on what is, is presented legally as being national spending, but in, it is entirely to support that candidate and only goes to that constituency because that candidate might win. 
See, that's so interesting to me because it feels like the exact opposite of the dynamic we have in the states where arguably the Democratic Party and the DNC, although this might come as a surprise to certain supporters of, of Bernie Sanders, um, is much less powerful than individual candidates in their races. And although the DNC supports candidates and tries to push money into districts, um, a strong candidate um, can generate often more more fundraising directly than the DNC can, especially in the era of kind of small dollar raising, um, combined with you know some big dollar big dollar donations with a with a good with a good list effectively, um, and so the party has relatively little control over what candidates are doing. Um, having said that, for the Democrats, I think there's you know a reasonable degree of of kind of us all pushing in the same direction during the Trump era, but that tends to fall by the wayside as soon as as soon as we come back into power and suddenly everybody scrambles and goes their own separate way. So I think there's, I think there's pluses and minuses to both systems, but it's interesting to see how powerful those structures are in terms of the outputs that they produce in terms of campaign advertising and literature. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, and 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 uh, a point on that is in Britain. If you resigned from your party and stood as an independent, uh, your chances of getting re-elected are very low, historically. Um, well, I think in America, actually, uh, you would take a lot of that infrastructure with you, and I think your chances of getting re-elected might actually be quite high. Yeah, um, reasonably high. I mean, it's pretty rare anyway for people to leave parties, but when they do, um, inc- although incumbency as a factor seems to be declining somewhat, partly because of um, the ability to... Um, some of the some of the power of incumbency has been has been eroded over time. But yes, it is also true that um, just parties are generally weaker in the states, and that has changed the way that we approach things. Even though partisanship is high, but it's also created, as I think you pointed out in your piece, a lot of space for innovation, um, which is going to be interesting to watch as we come up to twenty twenty. If you were advising a 2020 candidate, either at the presidential or at a local level, um, to think about how they could position, position themselves from a branding point of view, what would you recommend? The key thing is, is to recognize almost nobody will know who you are. Um, and that means you've got to find something about yourself or your campaign uh, that is different from everybody else. And I looked through a bunch of the candidates' videos this morning and yesterday, just to sort of get a feel for how they're presenting themselves. And the extraordinary thing is how many of the candidates who've declared for president say nothing differentiating about themselves. And they, they all say that, you know, they love their country and they all say that they hate Trump and that Trump's terrible. <clears throat> That's all fine. Uh, but it's quite hard uh, for me, for instance, to say, in what sense is Elizabeth Warren a different candidate from Bernie Sanders? Mm-hmm. I mean, she's a woman, but beyond that, I, <clears throat> I mean, I, I really actually can't, I, 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 it's hard to take away something different from her. And strangely, actually looking through the candidates as a whole, very few of them have done anything to be different in, in the way they've launched. Um, uh, and I, I think like going through, them, I thought, well, Bernie Sanders was interesting, actually, his relaunch video this time, because he could have just kind of said, I'm very left wing by American standards. Or he could have said, I came second last time, so it's sort of my turn round. But instead, he stressed how he had been um, leading on lots of issues before they became mainstream and had helped achieve things on, on healthcare and climate change and the war in Yemen and stuff like that. And I thought that was actually quite interesting for him because he, he said, actually, I, I'm somebody who gets things done. Uh, and not just for things, just not general things, things that you as a Democrat primary voter might care about. Mm-hmm. So I think, strangely enough, he came through better in it. Weirdly, he ba- barely appeared in it. Mm. Uh, it was almost entirely to have a policy message, but it was a, the policy message kind of made sense. Um, but then a lot of the other candidates, I thought I could, even a few hours later, I'd struggle to remember who was who. Interesting, really interesting. I think the the undercurrent to the Bernie um, message that you took away, um, which may or may not have been obvious, and maybe he was being really clever and subtle about it, is that whole thing of I've been working on these issues for a really long time is actually a dig at why he's more left wing than the other candidates. It's it's kind of a it's kind of a 
when the party didn't care about these things, I did. Yes. It's a, you know, for his supporters, it's a signal of, hey, those of you who are also critical of the Democratic Party, I have always been your standard bearer, but in a way that also allows people who are positive about the Democratic Party, such as myself, to go, yeah, I care about these issues and I'll get on board. So it's kind of like a weird sort of leftist dog whistle in a way. Um, that's, and that's a very clever message if you can manage to be positive and negative at the same time, because that's what the best messages do. Um, but when I, when I look at the other candidates, a lot of the time, their launch videos didn't even... Uh, didn't really say anything different from another candidate. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I was I was astounded, really. Actually, I thought, you know, Cory Booker, who who's a fantastic candidate, in, I think, in many ways. Uh, I mean, slightly over intellectualizes everything. It was all slightly too many long words. Yeah. Um, uh, but he missed out. I thought on the on his, the best thing about him, which is he ran Newark, which you know, very run down inner city area in, in America incredibly successfully as mayor and cut crime dramatically and massively improved education. Uh, and that's an incredibly strong story because actually a lot of his competitors don't have a story like that that speaks to the interests of normal people. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and you know, one of the problems in the Senate for a lot of these of the candidates is they will, have, they will have worked on big picture policy issues, but they're Explaining how they relate to people's everyday lives often takes a bit of explanation. And, and so weirdly, I've got something like Cory Booker, like he had this amazing own, uh, open goal for him um, and he didn't do it. Um, mm-hmm. I actually I thought his video was great, but it was at one level exactly what you call the stereotypical American personal biography. You know, had, yeah. yeah, great music. Uh, he told the story of his family and his life. Candidate walking around, smiling, shaking yeah. hands, uh, big uh, crowds. Uh, and it's sort of like the one point at which he almost got to was the fact he lives in a really poor part of a poor yeah. city. And, and that is actually massively more in touch with genuine problems in the country than the vast majority of you know, people who are going to run for president. And it is quite admirable and interesting. But you know, he didn't connect it to what he'd done as New, uh, mayor of New York at all. So it was, it was weirdly, he did watch one bit, which was br- sort of brilliant. But the rest of it was pretty mundane. I think that's a great call on Cory Booker, because I think, like you, I feel like he's a candidate who is currently underperforming how interesting he is. Yeah. Um, and and one of the things about that, so I, as you say, he still lives in basically a housing project in Newark that he moved into when he was mayor. He does not talk like somebody who lives in a housing project in Newark. He talks in a very elevated, poetic way that sounds like, to me, it sounds great. I'm like, that's lovely. I find it a little a little new agey sometimes. He's you know, <laughs> leading from love, and that's lovely, Corey. But, um, but I'm just always very struck by how he doesn't have the edge of his neighborhood. He doesn't have that way of presenting himself that makes him feel very real he's almost put himself in a very ivory tower surrounding way of way of speaking um you know he's a he's a vegan and he's um very like aspirational in his language it's it's all kind of lovely but i i feel like he needs to connect back to the kind of real world people around him he's gone a little bit it's it's funny He, he reminds me a bit of roy jenkins um who only very old, uh, relatively old uh, listeners to your <laughs> podcast will know, but who was uh, home se- Labour Home Secretary in the 1960s, responsible for almost all the great liberal leaps forward uh, of the last 50 years, you know, legalisation of homosexuality, reduction of censorship, uh, legalisation of abortion. Um, uh, and and he, he did all these amazing things, very uh, impressive guy. He actually came from an extremely poor family, mm-hmm. but as part of his education, he had got quite a posh accent and taken on lots of sort of what you might call elite hobbies, you know, dry, drinking very posh wine at a time where hardly anyone did and, and talking about it. Yeah. Uh, and so everyone assumed he was super elite when in fact his backstory <laughs> was entirely the opposite. Uh, and it feels almost like, uh, actually Cory Booker's from quite a, quite a middle-class family, so he's not from that background, but you know, he, he's got this story that's really interesting. Yeah. As you say, that it's completely underperforming. Well, I thought, you know, something like, and when I looked at Elizabeth Warren's stuff, I thought it was utterly bland. Yeah, it was yeah, nothing, I, nothing to get a, um, 
to get a handle on it. Okay, she's against Trump, but yeah, everyone is. But she also sort of slightly over-intellectualized things, I thought. But mm-hmm. in one sense, I thought, if you're offering her, her and Bernie Sanders actually look really similar in many ways. <laughs> um, you know, obviously, apart from her being a woman, there's just not anything different. Um, and, and I thought when I went through other candidates, it struck me that some of them kind of also missed out, uh, did some interesting things. Like, you know, uh, I was saying Amy, Amy uh, Klobuchar. Klobuchar. Uh, thank you for reading <laughs> a name which I cannot do. Uh, actually, the one thing she did was brilliant. She made her announcement in the snow. That was great branding. That was amongst everything else. She was standing there. It was freezing cold, and she's out there going, "We don't mind, do we? It's Minnesota." Exactly, and I thought it was great. It was was something interesting and different, Um, uh, and and I thought, yeah, I thought, I thought, yeah, and and she did at least. She had some. She had some policy in her speech, and okay, was quite a lot of it. And again, probably everyone, all the other candidates, would sign up to agreeing with it. But I thought at least being in the snow was interesting. Um, and weirdly, as I, I looked at Kamala Harris, and I thought it was weird. Her announcement, her like her official announcement video, was really bland. But then when you saw her do a rally, she was really interesting, and it was mainly because she was smiling and enjoying herself. And so, like a lot of the candidates, actually, a lot of the time, don't really look like they're enjoying themselves. Um, and I think actually, it makes you so much better a candidate if you enjoy the limelight. And Sorry to come back to Trump, but Trump obviously bloody loves people looking, mm. cheering him. And that really helps because it makes you look like you're, you're having fun and you're interesting. It makes you more confident. And more confident people are generally more interesting uh, to listen to and to watch. And I thought Kamala Harris had that, not in, in a launch video, I didn't think it was actually very good. But I thought when she did it around here, I thought, okay, actually, she looks like, you know, out, out of a candidate, she's probably the one you would want to go and, you know, go to a bar with and, and have a beer. Um, you know, you know Sanders and Warren come over as being, you know, would be incredibly tedious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Cory Booker think, be interesting, even though he doesn't yeah. drink, very be interesting. And Joe yeah. Biden would be interesting. But, you know, she was the one who like, stood out to me as I said, okay, you, you just seem like it might be quite fun. Yeah. Well, there was, it was interesting. There was a little Twitter spat that happened, uh, I think it was last week, um, where a journalist who was out with Kamala Harris on the campaign trail, she went into a shop together, a vintage clothing shop, and the journalist recommended this like funky sequined jacket to Kamala Harris and Kamala tried it on and she bought it. And then the journalist just tweeted out a, you know, I recommended this jacket to Kamala Harris. And it was really interesting because first of all, everybody was having fun, right? You could see that they were, they were out shopping and the jacket was kind of not your typical political jacket. It was really bright colors, jewels, glitter, sparkles. It was kind of a crazy, like, lovely jacket. And it was a very, you know, female-to-female bonding moment between her and this journalist. And then people on Twitter started criticizing the journalist for being too biased in sharing this moment with Kamala Harris. And the journalist was like, I'm sorry, I'm always going to recommend gorgeous vintage jackets. I'm not going to not do that. (laughs) But it really struck me that the whole conversation that was happening under under the line was people going, journalists should be non-biased. They shouldn't engage in human moments of connection. Where I was going, we need more politicians and journalists both who can engage in human moments of connection. You need you need to go out there and have some fun. It's really actually, interesting. And this is actually why AOC is such an interesting mm. politician because she constantly has fun. Yeah. And she doesn't, you know, um, so a, a lot of the time, I think, uh, you know, traditionally, it's been easier for the white middle-aged men to do that because they haven't felt we had an, uh, they haven't had, felt they've had as much to prove. Um, and again, people from elite backgrounds also tend to feel that, f- to some degree, find it easier uh, to to relax into it. So I think actually, people like AOC are fascinating because uh, they are doing it maybe twenty years earlier in their lives than you would traditionally think people get to that. Um, and they, and they, they again pass the test of actually interesting to listen to and look at. Uh, while a lot of the time, you know, a politician against you know. Uh, uh, you know, oak panels and stuff like that is just, you know, a bit tedious. I think that's a really good point. And I think it also points out something that I feel Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders both don't quite get right, which is AOC doesn't see any contradictions between having fun and talking about serious issues. And I feel like an older generation of politician on the left 
think you have to be scowling and miserable if you're talking about <laughs> terrible issues. <laughs> they do. It's just, oh, the environment is dying. True. Um, healthcare is a disaster. True. Um, inequality is rising. Yes. People don't want to feel bad about that. They want to feel that they can do something about it. And if you present your concerns about political situations with the appropriate, uh, probably, degree of seriousness and concern, um, you don't motivate people to action. You don't make them feel like there's an, there's something they can accomplish. And I think there is, so there is a very, the medium is the message aspect to this, that you have to, you have to give people enough positivity to believe that they can be part of a change. Otherwise we just spiral into anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and at a more, even just at the level of it's easier to get people to share your content on social media or, or in traditional media if you're interesting and fun. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> there's enough bad news in the world that nobody is looking for somebody extra saying it a lot of the time. Okay. And I think you know, it's a, it's a, you, you can't obviously ignore the serious stuff, uh, but you need to have a balance between the two. Um, and it's very easy, I think, to confuse what's important to you to, to what's an effective way to communicate with people. I think that's a great place to leave it. That gives us two key points. First of all, find something about yourself um, that is distinctive and interesting and tell that story. And second of all, have some fun out there. Shall we play the gut check game really quickly? Let's go, yeah. Let's go. All right, so for those of you new to the pod, I have in front of me my trusty Red Sox baseball cap into which I have placed slogans, strap lines, or policies or proposals that we have heard on the campaign trail. I'm going to pick one out and Rob and I will just check our guts and see how we feel about them. So the first one I have drawn out, it's actually an Elizabeth Warren policy, a wealth tax. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> this is one of these things where it really appeals to policy wants and for mm -hmm. far left. But I think the vast majority of people, the most important thing in their lives is that their kids get on in life. And uh, things like a wealth tax say, you've worked hard and you've been responsible by accumulating wealth because you haven't gone and you know, just drunk it all down at the pub uh, and we're going to take it away from you. And, and while there are many good reasons for wealth taxes, you know, I'm, you know, so at a policy level, I quite like wealth taxes, um, I, I think it's very hard for them not to end up being a huge negative unless you find a different way of, of doing them and talking about them. See, I, I think I'm going to hard disagree on that one, um, just on the politics, because I think on the policy, you and I you and I are probably aligned that there are some some strong reasons why a wealth tax might be wise. The, the wealth tax that Elizabeth Warren proposed is actually polling really well. And I, I would set it up as an opposition. So there is AOC has been talking about the possibility of a 70 percent income tax, which is a marginal tax. So it's not anyway. So she's been yeah. bless her. She's been doing the hard work of helping people understand what marginal taxation is. So thanks for that. Um, whereas Elizabeth Warren's tax uh, tax proposal is an interesting one because it actually raises more money than the income tax, but it sounds like less because she's talking about it as a 2% tax on all wealth above, I think it's like something like 100 million. Almost, and it polls really, really well, and it actually raises more revenue. So I think the politics and the policy might be better aligned on that than for other ways of raising revenue. That may be true, but if it's let's say it's, um, I mean, the way in which you can brand that, if you brand it a billionaire tax, mm. you're going to get a lot more support for it than what will happen, uh, even with 100 million, will be uh, it's easy to misrepresent as affecting ordinary people. Now, 100 million is very high, so you really should be able to find a way to make that work, uh, but I wouldn't underestimate how easy it is to, to do that. Um, uh, and and how much time you may end up, may end up explaining it. Uh, this is why I think often, to, you know, closing tax loopholes uh, that benefit, let's say, Amazon, uh, is often a much easier political way to go. But gets money out of the same people, funnily enough. Mm. Okay. Should we do another one? Yeah. All right. Okay. Here is one that is much discussed, and we've been talking about AOC, um, who is associated with this. This is Green New Deal. I, I, I think 
as a um, uh, as a headline, it's great. Um, it's, it's a kind yeah. of framing for actually a whole set of policies. Yeah, I think it's a great framing for policies. Um, I think the challenge is going to be how um, you know green taxes have to change change people's behaviour by making certain things more expensive, um, and you've got to you're going to have to decide within that how you're going to um, get the right people to feel the pain. Uh, because obviously, you know, uh, for instance, America is a car dependent country. Uh, it's very easy to scare people with things that sound anti-car. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think my take on the Green New Deal is, first of all, I am very grateful and relieved that a thing exists that is causing people to think more boldly about climate change as a problem because we have gotten out of the habit of thinking about it. As a, as a political class, because in America, it has been so impossible to get basic agreement upon the existence of climate change as a problem that we've just said, OK, well, then never mind. We'll just think about other things. But that doesn't work because the climate continues to get worse. And we are we are up against the point. I mean, we are well past the point of no return. But um, but but we need to take some bold action. So I think the the, the Green New Deal set of policies does the job that needs to be doing politically, which is to increase the degree of ambition that we put behind the seriousness of the problem, even just in how we talk about it. What the policy outcomes will be, I don't know. But I like I like that somebody is doing the hard work of saying we need to really get real about this now. And the other thing I like about it is that if you look at what they've done, it's not just a set of policies around the environment. It's a set of policies around creating environmental justice is kind of how it's framed, because a lot of what they're talking about is repositioning our economy in such a way that not only are we um, delivering, solving, or at least making an impact on some of the climate problems, but we're doing it in such a way that it doesn't increase the kind of inequalities that have, have been associated with previous innovations. And they're very thoughtful about the fact that, you know, minority communities are suffering environmental injustice. They are more likely to suffer from flooding and um, and severe weather. Um, and they, and but at the same time, innovation is at risk of leaving these communities behind. So you need to think a little bit harder about not just can we solve the problem, but can we solve it, solve it in a way that's sustainable for the human communities that will be affected? And I think that's really smart. Um, and I'm glad I'm glad that they've positioned it in that way. And it just goes to show what kind of a genuinely intellectually vibrant left can actually do, whether or not these policies actually wind up being inst instituted. I think it's helpful for us to think about these things in those two ways. One, as a very bold set of requirements and two, as something that's more holistically about about environmental justice. And that's great. Uh, the worry I always have when I hear things like that, which, which is, it sounds brilliant if you're like us on the left. Um, a, a lot of that language of inequality, I think, can turn off people in the centre and the right who might be necessary to make a sustainable coalition. Uh, and I think one of the things the environmental movement hasn't done quite as well as it could have, uh, and I include myself in that, which is talk about how this is about making sure our children uh, inherit, you know, a, a livable planet. Yeah. Um, and and that I think yeah, there are there's language of that about stewardship that can appeal to quite a large chunk of people who might not normally call themselves environmentalists. You know, the Bible constantly has stories about things like the prodigal son, which are all about stewardship and looking after things for the next generation. And I think there's a there's a language of that, and there's a danger often. What happens is you you create something that works brilliantly uh, for for the left, but doesn't go wide enough to be sustainable when when the right get into power. Well, I think this is uh, this is the crux of the problem that we have right now because. In an ideal world, you would have a conversation between the the left and the right about finding a consensus. We are not in a consensus forming political moment. And I think the left, I think just speaking on behalf of, you know, I am all of the left right now for the moment. So I think <laughs> that 
on behalf of all of the left, the journey that many of us have been on is we've made a lot of efforts to try and kind of find market-based solutions to the problems that we want to solve. And we've made a lot of efforts to try and um, speak in ways that will bring on board the people on the other side of the aisle so that we can achieve a consensus solution, even if they are not the solutions that we would optimally prefer. And we have had no traction from working in that way in America on the right, uh, with the right. And I think there's been over a decade of that happening, probably a couple decades now of over and over again with Obamacare, with managing the managing the financial crisis, um, yep, time and yep. time again, we try and do things in ways that take into account the views of people on the other side of the aisle and get not only no credit for it, we get called, ironically, called things like socialist when we are exactly being less socialist than we would yeah. like to be. I, 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 I wonder whether or not, though, there is a danger of falling into a trap of uh, confusing the politicians, yeah, and clearly Republicans have been, you know, ref have completely refused to take that hand of uh, cooperation, and the voters, uh, where I think that you know often uh, there might be a chunk of voters who actually are willing to abandon the Republican Party if they don't change their point of view. I think there's danger of confusing those two, uh, because. Uh, but I think the voters tend to be a bit more moderate, actually, uh, than, than the po polarizing political classes. At the I think I think it's an interesting question because I think the 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 left right divisions that have defined the voter class um, historically may not be operative in the same way as they were before. Um, I think there is there are a lot of people who are abandoning the Republican Party. Um, that's clear. How many of them, we we don't exactly know. But I do think there is, both on the left and on the right, a sort of populist undercurrent that's happening, which is oppositional to both the establishments of the, of the Democratic and Republican parties, which want to see more aggressive intervention to change some of the underpinning problems of uh, around inequality. Now that's the language the left uses, but the, the right has a similar objection to not getting a fair deal. Um, and I don't think we can necessarily solve that problem by, by centering in the middle. I think we probably need to move to a different position that's neither a left nor a right position, but something that's, that's addressed that, pro that populist issue. Yeah, I, I, I think I agree with that. Uh... Uh, for that, we ideally need a common enemy, and I, I propose Amazon. <laughs> Jeff Bezos, it's all your fault. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, listen, that's been uh, really enlightening for me and 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 interesting. Um, thank you so much for coming on the pod, Rob. Thank you for having me. And um, I hope to talk to you again soon. Brilliant. Speak to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's it. As always, thanks for listening to Primarily 2020. You can find me on Twitter at Karen J-R, that's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R. If you haven't yet registered and requested your absentee ballot, I urge you to do so promptly. If you are an American Democrat um, who is living in the UK, uh, this weekend on Saturday will be the Democrats Abroad UK um, elections. I will be standing um, again for, for executive committee. So if you happen to be an American, um, by all means, please do, and you happen to be a Democrat and you happen to be living in the UK, I strongly invite you to come down and I, I would ask for your vote. Otherwise, uh, I will let you know how it goes next week. As always, if you haven't yet registered and requested your absentee ballot, please do so. If you are American living in the States, it's vote it's vote.org. If you're an American living abroad, go to votefromabroad.org and happy voting. <laughs>